Welcome to this special video edition of the JuiceCast. Today we'll be talking with Robin Schmidt, also known as Supermassive. Robin is a multimedia beast, creating high-quality video content formerly at The Defiant and now at Based AF. In this conversation, Robin tells us about the pitfalls of the creator economy and how Web3 is falling short. He also explains why he's leaving The Defiant to take on his most ambitious venture yet at Based AF, where he plans to explore his interest in the metaverse somewhere between Web2 and Web3. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Robin. Thank you for taking the time to chat today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk to you guys on the Juice Cast. Funny enough, I, I wrote a short film wow, a long time ago, and there was a character in it called Jimmy the Juice. So every time I see Juice Box, I'm like, <laughs> it's Jimmy the Juice. And Jimmy the Juice was like a, a faded uh, one time, like a Tony Hawk character that had this, his own energy drink. And it was a juice thing, and he was just stuck in that period of time hawking like juice boxes and stuff. Anyway, it, we never made the film, but it's always stuck in my head, Jimmy the Juice. So interesting. Maybe this is like a you know alternative universe for Banny. This is uh, <laughs> like another origin story for Banny. Something like that could be, could be. <laughs> All right. Well, first things first. How tall are you? Are we talking like? six feet or seven feet or like why do you go by the handle i am super massive well that's that's a weird like out of left field like wasn't expecting it question beautiful <laughs> uh yeah more of those please so i i am six foot exactly funny enough at nft nyc people coming up to me going dude you look, you look right i was like yeah why, why is that exactly? It's like, no, because like we see these guys and they like, you know, on, on screen they look this big and then they see me alive with like a fucking short ass. I'm like, you, you, you look right. I'm like, well, that's very kind of you. Yes. I, my mother says the same thing and, you know, we've got on very well. Yeah. Um, Supermassive is, I had the prop earlier that I put on. Like, this is the glasses. So Supermassive is, there's a reason for this. Supermassive is basically, it's, there are in fact two of us. So myself and Simon won. Uh, who's an actor, comedian, writer. He and I had a character called Supermassive Raver, who was this raver who was stuck in the past and thought everything was shit. And then we'd just like say, peace and love and unity and dancing, that's the way to solve the world's problems. And he would go <laughs> around and just piss people off and play rave music. And we always held on to Supermassive as a brand that we thought we would do something with one day. And, and the Supermassive Raver always wore 3D glasses. So basically what we would do is we would take a politician like Joe Biden and we put 3D glasses on it and that would be our memification of Joe Biden. We do it with everything. And the 3D glasses were kind of our signature. Funny enough, like if you watch Back to the Future, there's one character in Back to the Future that wears 3D glasses. And I think it's um, Billy Zane. Because Billy Zane wears the 3D glasses in, right, in right. Back to the Future. And like for some reason, Billy Zane's one of those actors that I've just always loved because he's quite good and quite handsome, but rubbish. <laughs> like, there's, something, there's something so awesome about guys who are quite good and quite handsome, but rubbish who appear in movies and we sort of know them and we know their names, but like there's so many of them as well. But Supermassive is basically the brand that we always wanted to live behind and, and do things as. So Simon and I do things as, as Supermassive. And so that's, that's why I call myself I Am Supermassive. And it's also just funny because I'm obviously not Supermassive and I'm not a black hole either, but it's a kind of, kind of joie de vivre, living life to the max, taking every available opportunity and, and making the most of it, which I think is, is good advice for life, basically. 
Okay, because for a minute there we were thinking like, okay, is it like a weightlifting thing or is it like, what is the tie-in? With, no, you know, I'm, with, with I'm extremely well hung. It's, it's all trouser department. <laughs> That's what it is. You know, Vitalik got nothing on me, I tell you. Well, you've got bananas in juice box. I'm packing a few down there. Like, yeah, my producer Dan is shaking his head at here. me, so don't say that. Don't say that. That's the, you've gone down the wrong rabbit hole. Down! Damn it! <laughs> but anyway, yes, that's, that's nothing to do with that. That's what you're wondering. All right, well, I'm glad that we could clear that up. Moving right along, we are here to talk about the creator economy. Yes. So for listeners who might not be familiar, what exactly is the creator economy? Very good question. Well, the creator economy is the economy that's built by those who make content and deliver directly to audiences. So whereas a brand might partner up with a content creator to do a brand integration, the content creator themselves is where the value is at. And there's a whole economy that's sprung up around this. Sort of, oh, it feels like it's overnight, but it hasn't been. It's just, it's only recently that we've started to understand how valuable and how powerful it is. Of course, we have the Kardashians to thank for the prominence of all of that, suddenly owning Instagram and having these massive audiences where they could sell directly to people. And the trust relationship between consumers and creators has completely replaced the one that used to be there between, for instance, consumers in newspapers or consumers in broadcasters or big brands like the brand that makes your detergent. You know, you always have this feeling of trust that the people who make the, the chemicals that wash your clothes, well, they know what they're doing because they're scientists. That's all gone away. And now it's creators that have that relationship instead. And so you're seeing the rise of super creators like Mr. Beast, where the value of what can be achieved with 100 million subscribers is exponentially larger than can be achieved simply by the number of sales of sneakers you make that year. So that's where the creator economy is just going bananas, like $100 billion it's worth now, which for basically when, when people think of creators, like particularly YouTubers, you just think of some idiot in front of a camera talking <laughs> crap or crying or reacting to stuff. How is that of any value whatsoever? And the fact is, it's this feeling of authenticity or perceived authenticity that brands simply don't have. Mm -hmm. We've gotten so accustomed to seeing the stories that are spun out through advertising and everything else that we call bullshit. And so when we see a creator that is in a shabby environment and they're just talking from their heart, it has resonated with the generation in a way that is a direct reaction to what came before it, the mass capitalization, the mass consumerization of products through the 80s and 90s and into the thousands. And here we are. And it's, it's absolutely wild because it's not only is it opening up the world to literally anybody, whoever you are, wherever you are, but it's actually valuable. There is genuine business to be made here. You've got to be good, but the niche that you sit in that you think nobody's interested in, I bet you there's enough people around the world that will be interested in that for you to start making a business. And I think that's why it's, it's so exciting. It's borderless, it's permissionless in, in many ways, similar to blockchain. But that's why the creator economy is so exciting and it's showing no signs of slowing down either. You tweeted recently that the creator economy is supposedly worth $100 billion. Web3 has done a lousy job of adding anything meaningful to that. Yep. So where do you think that Web3 is falling short and what opportunities are being ignored? Can you give us some of your spicy hot takes? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing that you notice is there's a perceived enemy in all of this, which is the platforms. So YouTube is bad because it's Google. So therefore YouTube must be bad. And then there's a second assumption, which is, oh, we know what creators want. And so you get protocols that are 
for instance, trying to disrupt YouTube by creating a new video sharing platform. And then what you quickly realize is that that doesn't work because there's no incentive for anyone to go and put their content on that platform. Why would they? There's been DLive, there's been a whole bunch of other ones. Like the scale of those platforms is what it is because they've spent a long time getting there and they understand how to set up the incentives correctly. That doesn't mean you can't have a TikTok or a Be Real or or any of these other things that have that have sprung up, but you can't plan for that. And you can't simply say, we're going to do YouTube, but decentralized. TikTok changed the game, mm-hmm. short form, vertical video, completely changed the vein. No one, no one saw that coming. Tell me you saw that coming. And like TikTok was just a thing for sort of talking, it was just like miming to music. And then people sort of got on that platform and they were like, oh, wow, this is a thing. And then we were dancing and then it was in horribly embarrassing for a lot of people. And I bet they wish they hadn't. But, you know, the TikTok aside, <laughs> that's one thing where you, you can't disrupt that. And it doesn't need disrupting. And that's the thing. If you say it needs disrupting, you're saying here is a problem. Creators are getting screwed. And it might well be that creators do get a sucky deal. Like Twitch this week, is, it's had a pretty horrible time of it announcing that those who are on a 70-30 split with Twitch are now going to be switched to a 50-50 switch and that they're they're changing mm-hmm. the terms of all these things and you know they're, they're bringing in ad revenue. But like Twitch, is, it's a platform that can change the rules at its own whim. YouTube is the same thing. It can change the rules at its own whim. Just announced monetization right. for shorts. And so people think that this is necessarily bad. But any creator that goes onto the platform should by now understand the deal they're making with YouTube, that they are licensing their content to YouTube to run ads on. And that's the business model. Okay, and there's enough videos out there if you do your homework on how to be a YouTube content creator that will tell you this. So there's no real excuse for not knowing that anymore. But that's not a business that needs disrupting. And a lot of creators are doing really, really well on these platforms because they understand it's a game and they understand how to play that game. So the second part of it is Web3 immediately assumes that the solution is a token, which is not the solution, I don't think. And I'll tell you why, particularly with the creator economy, a token is the solution for quite a lot of things. For instance, if you want to represent a liquidity position in Uniswap, a token is the answer. If you want to separate Mm -hmm. volatile yield into junior and senior tranches, a token is the answer, 100%. That's the best way to do it. But a token is not the answer when it comes to the creator economy because the, the question that you run into is, I want people to watch my content here rather than somewhere else. So how am I going to incentivize them to do that? And we know that blockchain works on financial incentives. You mine a Bitcoin, that's your reward for adding your power to the network and keeping things decentralized. Well done you. So adding a token, that's the first thing you think of. But the problem with that, particularly with social tokens and things like that, is that creators then fall under the the pressure of having to put value into the token because the token goes up and down and gets speculated upon and their success or failure is predicated on the success or failure of the token. Therefore, the loop then becomes put value into the token to keep everyone happy. Don't put it into the work itself and being a better creator because that's what happens and it happens every single time. So, you know, when the market goes down, your token goes down as well. Not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. You are still a content creator. Nothing changed except, oh no, it's Bitcoin. So when the market goes up and down or the regulations come along, that's completely exogenous to you, but it has a huge effect on what you're doing. So it's just a dumb thing to do, full stop. Don't add a token. That's where Web3 has just gotten it so wrong. And I don't think those who are aiming to disrupt the creator economy have spent any time either being a content creator or talking to them. And it's not like YouTube is an exception to this. YouTube often changes the algorithm. They change, you know, there was the adpocalypse 
all of these things, like they don't talk to creators either. They're trying to do a better job of it. Twitch also, it's just a communications thing, but like don't assume if you're a blockchain protocol that a decentralized version of YouTube is a good idea or a decentralized version of Twitch is a good idea because it probably isn't. And there are not enough people that are gonna come in at scale to do anything about it. So Web3's sort of stock answers don't add up. Well, that doesn't mean that there aren't good things in Web3 that can be good for this, but I think there's a lot of hard work and development that needs to go into it. And it ha needs to happen in a live fire experiment. It can't just be a white paper that you drew up and then, you know, one phone call with an NFT influencer to form your opinions. No, it has to be figured out and it has to be figured out at scale. That's the other thing. You can't just do it with a channel that has 10,000 subscribers. And that's still quite a lot for, a, you know, the crypto space. It's not enough. It's not enough. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes the solutions that we come up with in Web3 can just be too skeuomorphic in relation to Web2 platforms. Like it, it is, like you said, like, oh, let's make a decentralized YouTube. When really the challenge is addressing the structural issue of how those platforms work and finding models that work for the people that are making content on those platforms, as opposed to saying, well, let's add a token to YouTube. It, it, it's just not enough to simply take the platform and kind of cryptoize it. We do need to think more about how to solve the problem. And Riley and I have thought a lot about this because we both come from an art background before we got involved in crypto at all and we studied photography and there was always this issue of finding an audience and particularly in like a fine art context of how we assign value to certain work versus other work and in in crypto and web3 i mean yes we've gone from selling physical works to mostly selling digital assets as nfts but we're also doing this on Twitter. So we're still back to the same issues of visibility. We're still back to this paradigm where you need a high follower count to really be discovered and for your work to find that audience and to therefore be financially viable. And even with big following, sometimes creators are not necessarily you know, successful. And if you don't have a following starting from scratch and it doesn't really matter whether you're selling a painting in the traditional art world or whether you're selling NFTs of 3D orbs or whatever, you're still on this insane grind to find this audience. And so this issue of discovery is really one of the fundamental issues here. And also just the question of funding, like how do you make the work without already having funds to do this? And then but you need to find an audience in order to get the funds, but then you need the funds to make the content. And so like you're stuck in this loop of, uh, you know, how do you even get started and how do you find success? And we know that you have a history as a filmmaker, which is a notoriously expensive and you know complex medium to work with. So how do you think we solve some of these fundamental issues like of discovery and how do we let creators make ambitious work, even if they aren't already well-established and therefore funded? Oh, boy. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's it's always this thing, isn't it? That you, you get a, a massive hype surge and then you get a re return to the mean. The, the mean for creators is you're going to have a hard time finding a way to get seen and get heard and monetizing your work. And we had this weird sort of dream state where NFTs were going up in value. We had these huge sales and it really felt like something had changed. And then there's this cold bucket of water to the face when you realize that people can buy NFTs on Pseudoswap and not pay the royalties. And you go, that was the entire mm -hmm. thing. That was the thing that made this different. And you're like, oh, fuck. That's really hard to swallow because of all the things that came out with NFTs, the royalties bit was the bit that I could point to people and say, this is fundamentally better. This 
if we can hold on to this, we'll be better. But of course, it's like all of these things, you know, there's, it's a, effectively a sales tax and it can be removed because it's not enforceable on chain. And that's not to say in the future that we can't have flavors of NFTs that can be enforceable on chain, but they're going to be a turnoff for people. So there's like two parts to this, isn't there? There's, there's the bit where you have to be a businessman and there's the bit where you have to be an artist. And if I'm a developer mm-hmm. building a piece of software, there comes a point where you think about product market fit. And so what I think has happened in the creative economy, and I'm really only speaking about video makers because that's kind of the world that I know. And I, I know that content creators can be medium blog posters or they can be podcasters, but fundamentally, I think it's the same issue. What tends to happen is the same thing that happens with any shitcoin project is everyone copies it. So the Mr. Beast model has been copied ad infinitum by a lot of different content creators and has given them a platform to be outrageous and do crazy things and just throw a ton of money around, but it's not really very sustainable. But what that does is it kind of homogenizes all the content. And I think what you're talking about is it's where's the outlier? Because the outliers are the ones that we look back in 10 years time and go, oh my God, they were groundbreaking, they were original, and nobody recognizes them at the time. But that's nothing to do with Web3 or Web2 or where we are. That's always been the case. You know, I took the kids to a Stravinsky performance two weeks ago. And we were telling them how when that piece of music was first heard, there was a riot. And they were like, what? Oh, the Red of Spring? Yeah. And they're like, oh, I've, I've played the Red of Spring. I love it. Yeah, it's it, amazing. And, it's amazing. It's a, and it, it completely transformed the face of music and dance. But they heard it and were like, why would anyone riot about this? And it seems so obvious now, but similar thing. Like a lot of the times, like the people who we now consider grandmasters or the pinnacle of the art form, they didn't get discovered until they were dead. And they're like, how, how are you supposed to tell mm-hmm. people that? Like, oh, so, so in, mm-hmm. in many ways, things are better. <laughs> but it's, it's really about being business-like about the way you develop the audience that you have. I can speak to this because I've spent two years developing the audience for The Defiant, and I've done it in a really hands-off way. For me, the only way to make that amount of content tolerable was to do it the way I wanted to do it. And that might not necessarily be in the way everyone else was doing it, but we'd always put crazy skits and we'd just do the most insane things we could think of because it kept it interesting. Otherwise, you're talking about a hack. You're talking about Ethereum. You're talking about Vitalik. You're talking about the merge again and again and again and again and again. And it gets really tedious because after a while, all DeFi protocols look the same because you've got the same protocol repeated on Avalanche or on Solana or anything else. And really what's interesting about it is, is, oh, it went up a lot for this brief period of time. And I'm like, well, that's not interesting either. So there's, it becomes increasingly difficult to find the interesting story in all of that. So really the, the, the mechanism by which we did it was how we kept it interesting for ourselves. And we alienated a lot of people by doing that because what they wanted was the fact. And this is the token I should buy. And we never gave that to them. And I also never engaged really with the audience either. I didn't have a Telegram group where we, I mean, we sort of conversed a little bit, but kept really at a distance because it just didn't want to be the reason people lost money. I didn't want to be the reason why, you know, someone would have made a purchasing decision because we were in conversation and that conversation led them to a position of confidence in me, therefore in what I was doing. You know, I did a massive series on PAC, huge piece of work. And then mm-hmm. look what happened with PAC. Like that's, yeah. that's just like, I feel massively to blame for a lot of that because I found it fascinating. I found what PAC had done really interesting and worthy of comment and worthy of some kind of uh, video essay. And, and so I went and did that. And then I look back and go, yeah, but how many people watched that and saw that body work and thought, well, yeah, this must be great. Really sucks. So 
you know, like I said, I, I kept the audience at arm's reach. And to be a really successful creator, you've got to do the opposite. You've got to bring them close. And I don't think that's necessarily a thing that everyone is really good at. So maybe something that you need to bring someone else into your team that is good at that, or you need to develop being good at that. Like ZHC, who's probably the most successful artist on YouTube at the moment. He's like this shy Asian kid, but he developed that persona and parlayed it into the most insane subscriber count, view account for videos that I personally think are crap, but he's done it. So, you know, good for him. So it just shows that there's, there's an element of hustle if you want to be really successful, but I don't think necessarily everybody wants to be really successful. So just the same thing that always applied, which is know your voice, develop your voice. And once you're confident with that voice, put it out there because if you consistently put it out there, people will find it and the right people will find it. And that self-selection process should mean that your audience, however big or small, is a good one. But funding your way through that in the meantime, if you're at a small scale, you can't rely on AdSense, you can't rely on these other funding things. You've just got to figure out how to do the funding bit. Even if you create an alter ego and you just do stuff that's ultimately massively commercial and that's funding the way you do the other stuff, maybe that's what you've got to do. In my case, just spent the last three months raising money from VCs, hat in hand, put a pitch deck together and just said, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to go. And do you believe in that? And fortunately, we managed to raise the money. So I'm now in a position where I can actually do that. But man, it's been in this market, it's been, it's been a journey. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that is something that's very important for creators to consider is that it is half making the work, but also half being a business person and developing that plan as well to push out the content consistently and really work on like growing an audience. And another issue that we found with DAOs and in relation to the creator economy is a lack of financial sustainability, especially in arts organizations dedicated either to collecting art or to funding the production of it. We previously were working at two photography-focused organizations. One was a DAO and one was a business, and neither was profitable or sustainable. They both heavily relied on the bull market to either bring value to the assets that they held or expecting the market to continue buying the work that they were producing. And it really brings this question up of why does it feel like Web3 is running into these same unsustainability patterns? Like many DAOs start with a lot of money and then they just sort of figure it out later. But then when the bear market comes, a lot of them become a bit dormant because they don't have any more money and they don't actually have a sustainable profit model developed. So well, you, you've hit the nail on the head there, which is <clears throat> profit, <laughs> profit. And profit can't be just flipping NFTs because that is, as you say, not sustainable. Crypto is incredibly seasonal. That means it's incredibly volatile. It's not a good place to build a business on if you are only building your business on that. You know, we started the Defiant during the bear market, the last one, and grew it up from there. So our trajectory was incredibly successful and we started small and we scaled up, but we just, you know, kept putting stuff out there. And fortunately, I've been through... 2017, 2018, and 2019. So I knew what this looked like. And again, like DAOs, they're just kind of group wallets in a sense. They're not completely autonomous the way you would hopefully want them to be because they're not mature enough, mm-hmm. you know. And governance, voting, participation, it's rubbish in DAOs. The, the, I mean, I haven't seen a single <laughs> one where, I mean, make a DAO, yes, they, they get things done. And there are certain DeFi ones that are pretty well participated in, but that's because there are billions of dollars at stake in those protocols and that makes sense but saying that bendow recently their governance mechanism kicked in and and fixed that little snafu they had there that worked pretty well 
But yeah, the DAOs just, they don't work. And they don't work because fundamentally human beings don't work. <laughs> but, they, but I mean, it's true that they don't because we're so bound to the sentiment of the market that the only way to get around it is not to be bound to the sentiment of the market. So the first challenge for any creator in Web3 is to not be a creator in Web3. And I sort of talk about Web 2.5 nowadays because I think somewhere in the middle of all of this, there's a model that marries the best of both worlds. And it's not quite the promise of Web 3, but it's better than Web 2. And that's probably where we are at, Web 2.5, because Web 3 can offer a lot and a decentralized version of things can offer a lot, but it's always speculative. So one of the challenges is to remove speculation from the notion of value. There's a couple of ways you can do that, actually. Solban tokens, so like non-transferable tokens, is one way to do that. So you have a token that is given value by you personally or by the actions that you've taken. Maybe you signed a legal agreement that allows you to do certain things or binds you to a certain set of tasks that you had to perform. And then, you know, as a result of doing that, you are awarded perks that distribute automatically because you have this little marker on your NFT. That, that really works. No one's built that stuff yet. But it's definitely a, a route to making a token that isn't about speculation, but is about action and the actions that you take. And then the other thing you can do is you can retrain people to find success in a different way. So, you know, when you think about NFTs, everyone's thinking about the floor price. And that's it. That's the metric. Right. That's the metric of success. So the floor price goes up, you're a genius, the floor price goes down, you're an idiot, you're crashing, devs, please do something, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so training people to think about success in a, in a different way and giving them a different set of metrics is how we do that. Now, I am probably the only person in the world right now crazy enough to try and do that at scale because that's just how I'm wired. I don't think there's any way we can change anything unless you have someone that's prepared to put it all on the line to try and get to a scale where people, other people take notice and this actually can be done. So that's kind of my mission for the next year with Based AF, which is my new project because if you didn't know already, I'm leaving the Defiant. So by the time this goes out, I will have left the Defiant. It will have been announced and I will be on my way to a new shiny new thing called Based AF, which is a, a metaverse focused content studio, which will be basically putting out YouTube videos designed to compete with the likes of Mr. Beast. That scale, that scope, that ambition, I'm telling the story of the metaverse specifically because the metaverse isn't Web3 or crypto. It's none of those things. It includes those things, but it's not bound to them. So in terms of the volatility, I can talk about VR, I can talk about AI, I can talk about education, I can talk about social presence, I can talk about the pandemic, how people can communicate in the future, transhumanism, all these things, all metaverse. None of it's bound to crypto. So when the market's bad, well, that's fine by me. I'm not going to be beholden <laughs> to that. But underpinning it all is something really important, which is when we think about creator economy, what you're thinking about is somebody who's talented enough to build an audience and then becomes a businessman or woman or them by monetizing that audience. That's how the credit economy works. And that's the business model. Now it becomes incredibly polished and refined these days as, you know, look at Emma Chamberlain selling coffee or Mr. Beast selling burgers, chocolate bars, etc. But fundamentally the issue I have with that is the audience is really important. Without that audience, the creator is nothing. So it's symbiotic. The creator makes money because they get views, AdSense, they get brand integrations because they have that audience, but they also sell merch, they sell product to the people mm -hmm. who are fans. In every single case, the audience is, in my mind, getting screwed because they don't see any of it. And yet they're an incredibly important part of it because what the audience is doing is they're sharing the content, 
they are giving their time and their attention to the creator in return for education, entertainment, something. And I think that that is going to become increasingly problematic for audiences. They don't know that yet, but they will. And they're going to know that because I'm going to do stuff that's going to show them a different way. So what you have is two pillars, build an audience, monetize that audience, and extract the maximum amount of value from that audience by flogging them courses and flogging them. Here's this pen that I made. It's the most awesome pen ever. I made it. It's got my name on it. You're going to buy it. It's 50 bucks. We've seen that, right? Oh, come and join me. I'm going to box KSI and then you have to pay for a ticket. No, all of this stuff. Um, (laughs) And that's totally fine. That's totally fine. But for me, when, when the audience shares your video, they watch it through to the end, that's work. And if you define it as work, then it should be paid for. So how do you do that? That's the big question. How do you pay people for their attention? So the trick is to build a third pillar to all of this, which is build an audience, monetize the audience, share the spoils. And the share the spoils bit is where Web3 works. Now, I don't know exactly how you do that yet because I haven't figured it all out. But what I do know is that unless somebody like me comes along and says, I can be as big as insert name of YouTuber here in a very short space of time, but I'm going to do it from a Web3 perspective from the get-go so that the audience that I'm building has a piece of it in some way, shape or form from the start, it ain't going to change, not ever. Because the big YouTubers that could make this happen have no incentive to do so. There's no reason for Mr. Beast to just suddenly add NFTs on. It's like, why would he? He's doing great. And anyone who's dipped a toe into NFTs or anything else and only dipped a toe has had their asses handed to them and they've been burnt by it because they don't (laughs) understand it and they haven't spent the time that we have in the trenches understanding this stuff from the inside out and they also wouldn't know how to implement something like a non-transferable token I have the benefit of having spent two and a half years interviewing founders talking to projects going through innumerable DeFi protocols and looking at what works and what doesn't work and figuring out that this is garbage, that isn't garbage and being exposed to all of that, which should, in theory, give me at least a great Rolodex of people I can call on to help try and make that third pillar a reality. And then the the final thing you need is a community that's willing to go and do that with you, which is why you have to have some kind of bootstrap community that that will jump in with you. And that's why a PFP community is great. And if the utility of that is, okay, you can play a part in the birth of a YouTube channel that's going to change the creator economy forever. Would that be of interest to you? And are you willing to take part in these wild experiments to try and figure that thing out? Because if you are, then this could be really fun. Now, I can't promise anything. It's a process, not a product, but it should be completely bananas. And I'm willing to go to the limits of human experience to make that possible. So... What on earth earth does that mean exactly? Well, (laughs) so if you think about the the videos I've been making, it's education, right? And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, do I want to do education, but for the metaverse? No. Because I look around like everybody's doing education. There is so much of it. And a lot of it is good. You don't need another educator. And to be honest with you, the bit that I do best, which is the storytelling bit, it's not necessary. We can do some education pieces, but what I want to do is I want to take the story of the metaverse, which I think personally is amazing, and elevate it to a level where people will think about it as this incredible opportunity. Because most people read articles about the metaverse and it's just an opportunity to dunk on Zuck or, you know, make fun of stupid land sales and things like that. It's just, it's, it's right. hopelessly underserved in terms of good content. 
So the challenge for me was, where can I find a niche on YouTube that is completely underserved, where I can explode through and capture a large audience very quickly? Because again, what we learned with The Defiant was DeFi was completely underserved. There's only us and Banklers, and then a few other channels sprang up, but it was basically us, Banklers, Finematics, and that was it. Even though we had small viewership numbers, our subscriber count was massive. So be metaverse positive and tell the kinds of stories in the metaverse that you might expect from Mr. Beast. And when we go a little bit further in that, we're thinking about culturally, what does this mean? And I always pitch it as MTV for the metaverse. So back in like 1981, when MTV launched, there was no way to really easily watch music videos. And it completely changed the course of popular culture forever. And then it gave birth to shows like Beavis and Butthead, you know, the Kardashians, do they start on MTV? But like the real world, the real world's just the most incredible show, Jackass, it changed popular culture forever. And it feels like the metaverse is in this weird place where nobody really knows what to do with it, but it's going to spawn something like that, a pop culture movement. So we really want to be that. And the kind of films we're going to make are going to be high concept, very expensive, very ambitious, and probably end up with me with broken limbs. But that's how you get attention. And if we get enough attention and we can scale up quickly enough, then the Web3 component of what we do is validated. But it only makes sense at scale because the experiment on like 10,000 people, it's not big enough for it to work. It has to be a million plus subscribers. So the challenge is, and I'm going to say it out loud, it's the first time I've said it on any show, is a million subscribers in 12 months. And the kind of films we're going to make are, for instance, I will be running a marathon in the metaverse. So I'm going to be running on a VR treadmill with a, you know, a headset attached to my face. And there's a lot of different pieces to that. It's like, which metaverse would we run in? How do you even connect those two things together? How, what, what are mm -hmm. the physical effects of running on a stupid VR treadmill that's only designed for like 20 minute game session? Like, what's that going to do to your body? Can I even do it? I don't even know. I've never run a marathon in my life before. I'm training at the moment. <laughs> and like, I ran 10, 10K today before we okay. had this conversation which is actually fantastic. But what I love about this one is like when I go in VR, it's massively physical. When Zuck is talking to Joe Rogan about his experience of VR, he talks about it in physical terms. Like people are physically present when they're in his version of the metaverse. And I'm like, you know what? You're absolutely right. That's how I feel. So what's the most extreme version of that I can think of as running a marathon? <laughs> so, a marathon. so I'm going to run a marathon in the metaverse. And actually it's probably going to end up being an ultra marathon because We've built in this benevolent supervillain into the show because we want to try and raise a lot of money for a kid's hospital. And I've sort of done this experiment before. I ate 10 Big Macs in two hours, which I would not recommend doing, by the way. But uh, <laughs> managed to raise like five grand for, the, for this kid's hospital in London. And we know that they, you know, like the cost of a dialysis machine is about 120K. So what we're going to do is we're going to run a juice box campaign during the event. One hit, we have to try and raise enough to buy one dialysis machine. Because if we do that, then I'll get reset back to the beginning of the marathon. I have to run the whole thing again. So I'm hoping that like, we'll get to mile 25 and we'll hit the number. And I'll get sent back to the beginning because I think people need to see you suffer. And if you want them to go into the pit with you and do stuff, you need to show them that you're willing to take it to the limit of human experience as well. So that's kind of the plan. And also I was so, I just watched terror implode and all those billions of dollars just evaporate. Whatever I do in this space, I want to do something that starts to redress that balance and redress the image of everything that happened. Because think of all the money and think of what could have been done with that. Like if it's just ensuring that some sick kids have a better life and might actually survive, I'm willing to do that and whatever it takes. So if it means running 60 miles instead of 26, then I'll do it. Because I think someone has to show the way and has to 
give an example of what might actually be possible here. So that's just one. I mean, I can't reveal what we're doing because it would give the game away, but that's probably one of the smaller videos we're going to be doing next year. There's bigger things coming and bigger ambitions, but it's really taking the idea of the metaverse, being metaverse positive, but living it from the inside out and trying to create the most insane, watchable, story-oriented human content we can around this emerging space. Because if we do that, our theory is that we'll attract a lot of interesting people who will start to build it out and make it good because there's a very real danger of it being bad. Wow, Robin, there's a lot going on here. Man. You're, you're, uh, the, you're I mean, the first people I've, sp I've said this to. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, no, you're, we're this honored. Is like in, in public, yeah, this, you're the first people I've said this to. There's a lot to talk about here. I mean, you mentioned Pseudoswap and the royalties, and that's something that I really found difficult because whenever I explained NFTs to a friend of mine that was creative, that was the first thing I told them about was the royalties because it felt like the thing that was so obviously different and the thing that was a fundamental structural change as opposed to a tokenization of this or that. And so for me, thinking about Pseudoswap, it's really complex because the idea with Pseudoswap is actually that you would make your own pool of your NFTs and that you would collect the fees on the pool. So it's sort of like a different way of thinking about fees rather than a royalty on the actual transfer of the NFT, which is impossible to enforce. But I like that in this new venture that you're describing, and congratulations, by the way, for starting this and embarking on this new venture, because obviously this must be a big transition for you. I like that from the get-go, you're thinking structurally about how you're going to approach the relationship between the person making the content and the audience, because this is really the relationship that I think can be improved. So yeah, we have this ad-based model on YouTube or whatever, and it does work, like it's functional, but as you've pointed out, we're beholden to the platforms and we can be rugged at any time. And that, that could mean literally the content being censored or it could mean a change in the terms of service. And we're all aware of that, but I, I do think that there are other ways to approach this. So very curious to see how you proceed with this new venture to, like you said, reward the audience for participating, which could be done in a lot of different ways. Do you have a sense of how exactly that will be put forward? Or is that still something that's on the drawing board? I do, but I can't say. Okay, I can't say. And, well, we're dropping a PFP, our PFP collection, first week of November. And people ask me, well, why are you doing a PFP collection? Why, why are you doing this? The answer is, we need to kickstart our audience from somewhere. And we also need a Web3 native community that understands how this works, that are willing to jump into the experiment with us. There's also a really practical reason for this, which is in order to make videos go viral, a certain bunch of things need to happen. Your thumbnail needs to be great. The concept needs to be great. But also there needs to be a signal to YouTube that people are watching, which means commenting, liking, and particularly watching a video from start to finish all the way through. What we want to do is incentivize our community to, to actually do that. That's a very low bar for them to get over. They don't even have to actually be present watching the video, just put it on, walk away, just let it go to the end. Because when you let it go to the end and you get this retention rate uh, statistic on your video, YouTube goes, oh, damn, son, there's something good here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send it to some <laughs> other people. They might like it and they might share it. Like if your content's good, which our content will be, it'll be architected in a way that is very story focused. It will have all the retention tactics that we need and we know we need to put in there to compete, but it will be still honest and true to the way I tell a story. But we just are challenging ourselves to come up with the concepts that scare us. That way we know we're on the right track. And then when you get there, a bunch of things happen. So if you are successful, and particularly in the niche that we're in, a certain bunch of things will happen. I'm not sure how much I want to tell you at this point, but what I will do 
go and look at what Yuga Labs is doing with other side and go and look at that model. I'm not going to say whether it's good or bad, but think about it in terms of they've got all this money, they're building a platform. Why would that succeed or fail? And then think about what I'm doing and then try and understand how the two might come together. And then I think you'll get there because what we have to do is we have to return value to people and in a meaningful way, and it can't be a token. It could be an NFT, but that's really not what I mean because an NFT, again, it's a substitute, it's a Band-Aid. Real value, it's dollars, it's real money. So how do we get that bit in there? You know, we can call it a real yield, but it has to be in there somewhere. But how we do that, can't tell you. I have an idea already and I'm working with some smart people to, okay. to make that into reality. But what I do know is that I can only do it after I hit a certain scale and I can only get to that certain scale by having a viral engine in the shape of this NFT community. There's another reason for having that NFT community, which is participation. Like if we do stuff in the metaverse and you want people to show up, then I need them to show up because it's a social construct, the metaverse. If it's not social, it's just a video game. So it has to have that social component. So having an audience that will show up for stuff that we do is also very important. And I, I mean, I, I like that you're kind of phrasing it as something of an experiment. So one thing that Bradley and I have experienced in one of the photography DAOs that we were involved in, they did compensation through Coordinate. I don't know if you're yep. familiar with this, but it's a decentralized compensation model where you vote for other people who have worked in the DAO and you're supposed to come to a group consensus as to who did the most work and who should be compensated the most. And it was a total fucking nightmare. But the idea and the problem that they were trying to solve was a very interesting idea. And what I think we liked about it, even though, as we said, it sucked, was that we were exposed to this experiment. And then through that, we reconsidered a lot of things that we thought about in relation to compensation, in relation to work, in relation to working with other people and valuing time and contributions and all these different things. And so being involved in the experiment was actually really what we got out of it, even though the end result was not necessarily perhaps the best system. And so I think similarly, you know, maybe Juicebox is not the solution to everything or this new model that you're making may not be the solution to all these problems. But by working through these experiments, we come to a better understanding of the problems that we're trying to tackle. And we do always learn something in the process. And at the very least, our beliefs in these structural issues are kind of challenged. And so I think regardless of whether we perfect the outcomes or whether we design perfect systems, which we won't, just being involved in the experiment is worthwhile. You know? Yeah, it is. And you have to have a, a community that understands from the get-go what their position and their place is in it. And I think one of the things that we were very mindful of was if you are a token holder or an NFT holder, you have very little agency in anything. You can go and say what you've bought on Twitter, but you have very little influence over the success or failure of a project. But as a creator, actually an individual viewer does have an impact and a measurable, tangible impact on the success of a video. And it's a simple thing that you can do to click the like button and watch a video to the end. Well, that's a very low lift. And that actually has a measurable result on the success or failure of what we're doing. Of course, you can do more, you can share and everything else, but fundamentally it's linking that to what we're doing and making sure that you know, our community understands that they have a role to play in this. And if they do that, then there will be something that we reward them with on the other side of it. And of course, then saying, let's put it to a vote. What do you think? And having that conversation with them. But that has to be built in from the get-go. Otherwise, there's going to be so much skepticism from anyone who joins in if you add that in later. If it's there at the beginning, then it's honest. 
And it may go in horrible directions and may split communities and everything else, but that's kind of what you have to be willing to front up to. It's also something that doesn't necessarily scale very well. And I'm also aware of this. So, you know, you hit a million subscribers and you're, you're making X, well, then what? Because you've only got 10,000 items in your NFT collection. Ooh, there's a disconnect here. So, well, yeah, okay. But that 10,000 is, they're the super fans. So good for them. And they're the ones that have figured out that you can be a full-time fan of a project, i.e. being a fan is their job. That's a huge idea. And that's basically where we think we can make some real inroads with what we're doing. Like you said, it's an experiment. It has to be a thing where we can fail and we don't get hated for it because we're trying stuff. But we can make one very big promise and pledge up front about what we're going to do that will help steer that. But I can't tell you what that is either, unfortunately. Right. And so with you sort of sitting between Web 2, Web 3, the sort of Web 2.5 in relation to your upcoming project, Benevolent Supervillain, why did you choose to crowdfund this upcoming project on Juicebox as opposed to something like GoFundMe? Because I like Juicebox. It's as simple as that. <laughs> Juicebox, That's Juice, okay. It's also an optical thing because if I say we want to raise $125,000, it's going to be very difficult. But if we say we want to raise 80 ETH, we can do it like that. It's honestly, it's as simple as that. The relative price, when you factor it in crypto and you make it a crypto thing, the ease with which we would be able to actually raise the money is far greater than doing it through GoFundMe. And actually, what is the result that we want? We want to see me have to run an extra 25 miles and we want the kids in the hospital to have the equipment they need. So Juicebox is the best way for us to do that. All right. Where should we go from here, Robin? What other alpha can you give us? I feel like you've exposed this huge roadmap for us. I, I feel like we've had a board meeting with you and we're oh, just Lordy. about to well, hop good. on with your Series B or something. I've been sitting on this for some time and just figuring out and figuring out and figuring out. And like, I'm not going to put myself out there and say that I have all the answers and that's not kind of the point. What I'm fascinated by is, honestly, it's a personal thing. Like, Can I, as a person that understands storytelling, without the restrictions of having to meet certain editorial quotas for the company that I work for? Can I compete with the top creators in the world by picking the right niche, by making the right content and trusting that I'm a good enough storyteller that I can, can make people fall in love with the content that we make? That's the first bet. And then the second bet was, could I persuade VCs that that was something worth investing in? Because media traditionally is not a great bet for VCs. But then when you look at the sort of broader landscape, when you think about where things are going, and then you think about the value of a metaverse native audience, particularly in, in the light of all the, the money that's been spent by brands trying to figure out their metaverse strategy, would they be interested in a channel where, or, you know, advertising on a channel where metaverse is our unique and only obsession? That's interesting. And then the third bit is, why would I add this Web3 component to it if I didn't need to? And, you know, it boils down to just looking at the overall landscape and looking at how you can just start to see things are changing with YouTube. There was this huge explosion of creativity during the pandemic where everyone was writing and doing art and everything else. A lot of that's ebbed away, but it, what's been left is this sense that the creative economy really is a thing and it's really big and it's really cool. And it's been rinsed to the max, mostly following this Mr. Beast's massive, a very expensive, high attention kind of concepts. And you're just starting to see like Casey Neistat's vlogging again. There's this little return to something more human. So like a lot of the Mr. B stuff will remain, but I find it very difficult to understand where he's going to go next, how he can scale, how he can continue to grow. So I feel like that Mr. Beast era 
is going away and what's going to replace it is going to be a more human and a more audience focused mm -hmm. version of this. And if that's the case, then what is the audience getting out of it? Because you can't just keep sending them stuff because if there's a recession and everyone's broke, that goes away. Advertisers are not going to advertise. So you have to really put the time in to make it worthwhile being a member of your particular audience. And I think that's a good place for the best things about what we've seen from NFTs and Web3 in the last couple of years to stand tall and be proud of what, what's happening because that's the bit that they, they really are good at. So I, I listen to like MKBHD, for instance, like creator of the decade. He just opened a Discord channel, everyone. Just opened it. <laughs> he just opened a Discord channel. He's in there. He's having wow. a conversation. And you're like, dude, come on. Like we're in Telegram. We're in like a hundred Discord channels. What's wrong with you? Like this is so right for us. He's like, oh my God, I, I'm listening to these conversations. And I'm like, wow. I hear creators talk about their community. Like Airac, for instance, he has the mafia. We tried to find this community. And it's basically just a bunch of people that message him on Instagram. He has this kind of creator core community, but it's basically, he's just selling them courses. It's like, I learned to do this. Now I'm going to sell it to you as well. Our notion of what a community is, is so very different in this space. And for me, it's a lot more vibrant and it's a lot more interesting. It's problematic as well. It demands to be fed like every 12 hours, otherwise it runs away or it screams at you. But you know, if you've had children, it's basically just a bunch of toddlers and that's fine. We can do that. As long as you wipe their bums and give them a meal, it's fine. That is really familiar. So it, it just feels like that's the Web3 bit that works for me. Or maybe it's not even Web3. It's just the discourse and the excitement around stuff can be funneled back in. And, and then find the smartest people you can that understand tokenomics, that understand incentive systems, and then pair them up with legal assistance where you know 100% you're not stepping into the boundaries of what might be considered a security. And then just go for it. Your new venture is going to be focused on the metaverse. Are you familiar with Lexicon Devils by chance? Lexicon Devils? No, I am sorry. Okay, you, uh, Googling you it should now. definitely take a look. So have you ever been to the, the juice box parcel in Voxels? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, do it right now. Go to juicebox.lexicondevils.xyz. Juicebox.lexicondevils.xyz. XYZ. If you're listening at home, viewers... Or listeners, <laughs> I'm loading up a web page. The page is loading now. Hairs on my arm are standing up in anticipation of this moment. Oh, they should be. They should be. It's loading, everyone. <laughs> I see a mauve landscape, a horizon stretching to infinity like the endless possibility of endeavor. It's yellow, everyone. I see the, the, it. I see it. Here it is. The reason I bring it up is because Lexicon Devils, they're metaverse builders. They're, uh, I think there's eight or nine of them, kind of like a rotating cast of friends. And they put on these metaverse concerts uh, in a series called Forming. Every, are they monthly or? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I found so, the stairs. Yeah, so I'm going up. <laughs> I'm going, this is exciting, everyone. Yeah. It's such an intricate Voxels build. It's truly next level. You could spend hours in there looking at all the details. But yeah, I would definitely recommend, you should do an episode on, on Forming. They they call it a, a hyperverse concert. Maybe Briley. Oh yeah, totally. Like, how would you how would you describe the experience? Because we just went to one a few days ago. Yeah, the hyperverse concert. They curate a lineup of Web three musicians, and they have a juice box project called Forming, and they put in funds, and they also fundraise with communities with fans to pay out those artists for pre recorded content that then gets broadcasted on that big computer that you're seeing during a live performance so that 
the artists can be paid for their work, but they can also be present at the Voxels event and be using the chat feature to be interacting with fans live and being able to enjoy the performance with them while being paid for it and being exposed to the possibilities of Juicebox in the process. Oh, I, I love the floppy disks. That's a very cool feature. So there's a bunch of floppy disks that are kind They're of amazing. floating in space and I can jump on them and get up. Get up high. Yeah, shout out to Wakazako. He's one of the builders that worked on that whole scene there. It's pretty wild. Personally, I haven't seen any Voxels builds quite like No, this is like this is remarkably immersive because I, I also have not seen a lot of Voxels builds. We kind of need to spend a bit of time in, in Crypto Voxels and give it some thought and attention because, you know, it is OG and it's still got a lot of interesting things that have been built in it. But of course, you know, the metaverse isn't it doesn't have to be decentralized. Roblox is equally valid as a metaverse concept horizon world is, is going to see a whole bunch of people making stuff that's maybe interesting maybe not but it's how we connect them all how we pull people from one place to another music obviously uh, can play a huge part in all of this events but they have to be the right kind of event so we've done a lot of thinking about if we were to do an event what would it be what would the audience be and how would we set it up and i think there's a lot of interesting technology that can be applied to this to allow it to be a thing that's very specific and native to these kind of platforms. And I think that's what it needs to be. It needs to be something that could only happen in this space, in this way. Otherwise, there are just better things elsewhere that people would do. But like everything, we have to try. And I think one of the things that we fundamentally should be doing at base is building a really spectacular audience really fast. So when these kind of experiments are there, we can shine a light on it and we can turn up there and actually be useful as a kind of audience as a service. Wow. And if you say audience as a service, really what you're saying is ass. So we can be, we can be your <laughs> ass. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, are, I just came up with that and then I realized what it was. I was like, well, just, let's just own this. Ass. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I don't know, Robin. We might need to workshop that a little bit, you know? Why? It sells itself. Like, what do you sit on? I'm sitting on your ass. <laughs> But uh, going back to the forming thing, one of the things that was cool about the concert was that, I mean, the, the concert itself w was pretty wild. Basically, there were, I think, three or four different musicians that played these pre-recorded sets. But then also Lexicon Devils, the, the Metaverse Guild, they make pretty wild video content that is interspersed between the sets. So one of the members, Darby, he made this skit where he filmed like a, an episode of Mori. It's really hard to describe, but you have to just go watch the recording of it. But it's extremely funny. So there's like this hodgepodge video aesthetic thrown in with NFTs and then also coming back to performances by real musicians. Yeah. And uh, all of that happening in this really, like you said, immersive metaverse build. And, and then at the end of the concert, live on that big computer, they paid out the artists via Juicebox that they called the function to distribute the funds. And like right there, whoever played their sets got paid and you could see the transaction go through on the screen which was kind of wild because it's just such a radical level of transparency. Like you would never, if you went to a show, you would never see the band getting paid on stage. It was kind of wild, just the experience of, of seeing not only Juicebox come together with these performances, but also then all these different elements of this metaverse experience kind of combining into this one weird event that was really great. So yeah, I would highly recommend that you check it yeah, out. Yeah, I, I, was, I was watching on the Lexicon Devils uh, Twitter page that had a little <clears throat> video of that. Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? That that's such a thing is, why is that novel? Why, is that, why does that feel interesting and, and different? Like how, how, how did we get so badly down the wrong path that 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 something like that is so simple 
is is meaningful. Weird, huh? Twenty first century. <laughs> it's gotten really old. Yeah. Yeah, that's been my thesis of my experience in Web three is that we don't necessarily have the answers, and there's also no guarantee that things will be better or will be different. But we have the opportunity to try and make that change, to experiment, and see what it is that we can build. What can we rethink and reapproach in things that haven't been working before? Yeah, and I think a lot of it is to do with extreme radicalism doesn't work. Like if everything is radical and weird and wacky, then it's too much. And if you want people to come in on mass, it needs to be pretty familiar. But then with this one little element that's different and weird, and that's kind of what what I'm trying to do now. You know, DeFi has been wonderful. The Define has been wonderful, but it's it's a niche of a niche of a niche, and that's like that's pretty hard. So doing something which has got much more mass appeal, we're effectively creating videos that you could watch if you never owned an NFT, and it doesn't matter but you might be interested in a thing or you've heard about a thing and like Meta Connects two weeks, I think. There's going to be a new Oculus headset. There's going to be a lot of attention around the metaverse and like Walmart's done an experience in Roblox. So we know that that is in the wind. It's out there. And if the only weird thing that we do is this tiny little NFT piece of it, that's enough. And that's enough for us to kind of just own that and and start to develop it. But like if we try and do too many weird things simultaneously, we're going to be in trouble. So getting that balance right, that's kind of one of the hardest things for us. Don't be too weird give the people what they want, but then slowly around the back, start to inceptionize these new ideas. All right. Well, thank you so much, Robin, for taking the time to sit down with us to talk about Juicebox and the creator economy and Web3 and asses. It's, it's, <laughs> been, uh, it's been a good time. Isn't, it, doesn't it feel like that's just Team America World Police? You know, like it's just like, uh, and then they called on the agency Uh, we'll just turn up hey we're the audience this is here I'll get get a bit so a lot but you know whatever it's fine I can live with that yeah lots of branding opportunities so much so much you have no idea I'm going to talk to my creative director right now Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Robin. This was fun. And we're going to be watching really closely, uh, not only for the new project that you're launching, but also the marathon. We're going to make sure that you feel as much pain as possible oh, God, and yes. make you run 50 miles or, or whatever it is. It's for the kids, uh, man. So, it's for the kids. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> there's, uh, there's no downside to making you suffer. Oh. So, you know, let's do it. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This was a fun chat. And I'm looking forward to putting our Juicebox campaign up because I think, you know, it's a worthy cause. Hopefully it should work. Absolutely. Hope you can make it, you know, because 50 miles sounds pretty brutal. So looking forward to uh, seeing if Robin's going to make it or not. <laughs> Stay tuned, folks. You may see a grown man die on camera while strapped into a VR rig. It won't be pretty. It'll be very sweaty. Yeah, at least that's for up. sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. Definitely some vomit. <laughs> vomit. Bodily fluids of all kinds. There might be some bleeding as well. I mean, it's going to be a whole show. Yeah. Promise you. Yeah, the vomit comet. There you go. Yeah, it's gonna be great. <laughs> nice. There was a uh, an old nickname for a, a bus line in, in Toronto that was called the vomit comet, just because of that particular uh, route. So anyway, that just made me think of that. Figured I'd throw that in. Do it. And yep. uh, feel free to use that tagline for your campaign. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, this is fun. All right. Thanks, Robin. Cheers. All right. Talk soon.